Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a show for 20-somethings that are trying to figure out adulting. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Each episode, we focus on solving a problem that we will face throughout this defining decade that wasn't covered in the classroom. This could include topics about our career, health, relationships, and money. Let's get into it. There is nothing better than waking up in the morning feeling refreshed and energized. I love a good night's sleep. And on the flip side, if I didn't get enough quality sleep, I might as well take the L and call it a personal day. As soon as I learned this about myself, I became attuned to good sleep habits. I have no idea how I survived college with an inconsistent sleep schedule, late night drinking, and early morning call times. I never looked at sleep as a critical aspect of my health like I did exercise and food. If you take sleep seriously like me, or you're interested in improving in this area of health, you are going to love my conversation today. Dr. Jennifer Reed is a board-certified psychiatrist who focuses on insomnia and anxiety. She's also an award-winning medical educator, regular contributor to Psychology Today with her blog, Think Like a Shrink, and the host of the podcast, The Reflective Doc. Jennifer really impressed me with her extensive knowledge of sleep. We cover a ton of great topics, including marijuana and sleep, social jet lag, and her thoughts on sleep tracking wearables. We also conclude the episode discussing anxiety. Dr. Reed gives really great actionable advice on reframing what-if claims to if-them statements. If you stay tuned to the end, you'll know what I'm talking about. I know you're going to get a lot from this episode. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the psychiatrist, award-winning medical educator, and the reflective doc herself, Dr. Jennifer Reed. Dr. Jennifer Reed, I am excited to have you on the podcast. We are going to have a great conversation about sleep, but I actually want to start off topic from that. I promise we'll get to those in, in a little while, but we both have a mutual love for podcasts. We are podcast hosts. Your podcast is The Reflective Doc, and people can find that very accessibly on pretty much any podcast player. So I'm curious, who's a recent podcast guest that's left an impression on you? Because I can tell you, podcasting has really shaped my thinking on a lot of different things because I'm having these conversations all the time, especially on things that I typically wouldn't spend time thinking about. So I'm curious if that happened to you. And if so, who is somebody that has left an impression on you? Well, I think there's been a couple different types of impressions that I've really noticed recently or just over the, the course of the podcast is that, you know, in my day job, I am interviewing individuals who are struggling with depression or anxiety, and I'm asking all the questions, you know, I have to really understand your kind of whole life trajectory. And it's in a very private, confidential setting. And I've had some guests that have come on who've gone through really terrible, like horrific experiences throughout their lives. And not only have they now shaped that in a way that allows them to help others, which I think is just so amazing, but they also were so open and, you know, sharing some of these most vulnerable moments in hopes, you know, their words and through my, my reading of it in hopes that they could help others going through the same thing. A, that you're not alone. B, that there are these, some of these options. Here are ways that I might be helping or others might be helping. So I think those guests, some of them that have come on and been so open and courageous with me in a way that I don't know if I could be as open as they have been. I really try to share my own experiences, but they've just blown me away with some of their willingness to share in their little niche or their big niche. And maybe they're publishing in, you know, journals or, or medical journals, but it doesn't reach our general audience as much. And I love being able to, I had an interviewer or a, a podcast a guest from Colombia. She does research in cannabis, so in marijuana. And I really wanted to talk to her about, okay, what is really the data? How do we study it in the States? What are some of the flaws of how we study it? What do we truly know about its safety and its efficacy? And that was just so much fun because she really understood the data. There wasn't anything political or, you know, judgmental or, or, you know, even culturally mediated. It was just like, this is the data that I have. And I think being able to really talk through that and understand that it's an important voice in the changes that are happening within the use of cannabis, for example, not that we were for or against it even, but just like, what do we really know in our fields for things like anxiety and insomnia? So that was really fun because I got to try and, you know, the idea of bringing the Ivy Tower, the academic information to someone on Main Street, to someone in my hometown, for example, like that's really such a beautiful opportunity as well for the podcasting that can really be listened to, you know, worldwide and people around the world listening, as I'm sure you do. And that's a pretty incredible feeling. Yeah, no doubt. What were some of the highlights from the conversation or the data around cannabis as well? I heard you talk on it in one interview, but it seemed like 
we just didn't really know a whole lot about, about it yet. So I'm curious what you learned or what was shared in that episode. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the key points that I really learned, one was that they really get all of their research-grade cannabis from one particular farm where there's so much oversight, right? Because we don't want any contaminants in the, in the plants and we don't want any sort of you know, mold or other things that could be creating problems. We want to really understand what the two main components, THC and CBD, are within the plant. And so that's really what they're studying. But that the potency of that drug that they get from this particular farm is actually significantly lower THC component, which is kind of the what we call psychoactive component, the part that gets, makes you feel high or makes you maybe, you know, feel a little paranoid or feel just some of the many different ways that people experience this. So I think understanding that the, the drugs that people may buy even in dispensaries, and she was very you know clear about this, we don't know that much about how much is the true component of THC versus CBD and what are the outcomes of that. And some of the claims that are made, you know, she brought up some particular areas that she's concerned about, and that would be in pregnancy and that she really doesn't think that's a good choice. And then also in adolescence, we're having increasing you know, papers and data coming out about some of the effects of really muddling with our own endocannabinoid system during adolescence, and that that really can cause long-term issues with mood and thinking and memory. And so heavy use during that adolescent period is really is pretty concerning. And I don't know that that's out there in the general audience much. So those are some of the things that, that did stand out for me. I mean, there were other aspects about what we really studied it in, and there are some particular applications. But I think it's important to just recognize how little we do know about the things that are being even dispensed or, or sold in the street. Yeah. What about in terms of sleep, CBDIC prescribed, maybe not prescribed, but maybe self-prescribed for this <laughs> quite some time. I, I hear lots of friends or acquaintances mention that they have to smoke or ingest uh, CBD before getting a good night's sleep. Do you find that to be aligning in your work or is that still up for interpretation? Yeah, great question. So another thing that we talked about in that podcast is that CBD, she can't even get that in the States to study. She'd have to like bring it in from Canada and all the regulations to do that essentially means that researchers have really struggled to get a sense of what are the true benefits for CBD. There are some trials in things like epilepsy, for example, where we're using some of the CBD specifically for types of epilepsy, but there's just very little data on CBD in general and its application for things like anxiety or insomnia. I think, you know, as we talk more broadly about sleep, I think we can talk about how it is so behaviorally mod you know, modified, essentially the way we think about sleep and approach sleep is incredibly powerful. Our mind is really powerful as it comes to many things, particularly sleep. The case that someone says, I need X, Y, or Z to get to sleep. That's what gives me confidence and that allows me to get into sleep. And so there really is a very high placebo effect for some of the things that we use to treat sleep because people say, oh, this is going to help. And then it does. Now, whether that's the effect of the med and that's what we try to kind of separate out in our placebo controlled trials, but we don't always know. And for CBD, we just don't have that data. I think compared to THC, I'm not as concerned about people using CBD regularly. I don't have as much data on sort of negative outcomes. And I think because it's not psychoactive necessarily, that it's going to be a little bit lower risk for someone who's driving or doing something else that needs fine motor and really clear focus. But I would say all the money that's being spent on CBD, a, a good amount of it is for that confidence and placebo effect. I'm not saying it's not going to be noted to be helpful over time and we might get more and more data on that, but that isn't something I would necessarily recommend for my seed, less because I'm worried about its effects and more just, I don't know that it's as effective as some of the other ways that I help people treat their insomnia or treat their anxiety. Now, like you said, a lot are self-medicating and a lot of that is, you know, problems within my field as far as access, numbers of providers that really can help people who are struggling. So that's another reason I'm trying to talk about this so broadly because Yes, meds, you know, can be helpful short-term for sleep, but like cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is actually much more effective and long-lasting. It doesn't have risks of side effects, right? As any med or the CBD or THC combinations can. Well, we're going to get into much more about that and some other things around sleep, but let's open the conversation up and kind of start somewhat high level. Why is sleep important? Is it true that we go through some kind of like 
cleansing and refueling during the sleeping process? Like I hear so many different things about filing memories and processing experiences and different things like that. Is that true? So yeah, and this is why I can talk all day about sleep. It is so fascinating. And there are all these little individual amazing pieces that I just like these little snacks of, of really amazing information. So I like to kind of go back and think about the way that we've evolved over time. So assuming people are comfortable with the concept of evolution, the sense that over time, what we have done is we've adapted in all these different ways to survive and thrive in our environment. The idea that we've adapted to be kind of unconscious and unable to protect ourselves from predators and other risks for seven or eight hours every single day, like a third of our time, is really amazing. And it just points to what a powerful drive this is and how important sleep is, right? Otherwise, we would have just, you know, moved right away from that a long time ago. Maybe we do a quick nap and get right back to producing and reproducing and all of these things we need to do to, to persist as a society. So I think it's such a powerful drive. And some of the things, the more we discover about it, we know it's important. It took a while to figure out why, but we know that it can really boost our immunity. We know that it can actually boost our response to vaccines, which is certainly important as of recent times. We know that it can decrease risk of certain cancers, actually, if we're getting optimal sleep. We know that it changes our metabolism if we don't get adequate sleep. So I'm talking in general, if we say sleep deprivation, fewer than six hours a night on the regular, let's say six hours in a 24-hour period. Some people sleep during the day, they do shift work, or that's just when they're at their best. So we're saying that anything less than that on the regular, when they've looked at studies, it changes the way that we eat. It changes the way we crave food. It actually boosts a hormone that makes us hungry and decreases a hormone that makes us full. And so it's harder to eat the way that we're all trying to eat healthy, right? We all want to be fit. It makes it harder to do that, harder to lose weight, for example. And those are just a few little snippets of how important it can be. We certainly know, I mean, this is so cool that there is this like cleaning system that steps in at night and comes through this amazing system that cleans out some of the different things that can lead to plaques that eventually cause things like Alzheimer's disease. So there's a lot of studies going on now to see, does sleep deprivation increase people's risk of cognitive decline, memory problems? It does seem like those are linked. So, you know, really pointing out sleep deprivation is such a huge pub public health concern. We're talking like 75 million, I think last time I was reading, are, are not getting adequate sleep. And of course, it's not always because they're just like up on their phones. I mean, that's a problem for all of us, myself included, I admit. <laughs> but, you know, it also can be that they're working two jobs or three jobs or they're trying to come home and do the second shift with the kids or they just don't have the support or scaffolding to make time to have sleep opportunity seven or eight hours a night. I mean, whenever I get into bed, I think what a gift, like how grateful am I that I have the ability to do this because you know, my kids are asleep. I don't have to work during these hours. I'm in a safe place under my roof and my cozy bed. And I think that's really important to recognize that sleep deprivation isn't always by choice, but is so important. And then I want to differentiate that a little bit from insomnia or a lot from insomnia, truly. But insomnia really is defined as like low quality sleep, sleep that we're not satisfied with, sleep that doesn't happen when and in the way that we want it to, and then the anxiety that comes up around sleep. That doesn't mean it's true sleep deprivation. In fact, you might be in bed, you might get seven hours of sleep, but you're in bed for 11 or 10 or 11. And it just feels like I'm just lying here staring at the ceiling. But you look at your you know, Fitbit or whatever it may be, you're getting seven hours. You just wake up feeling awful. Mm. So insomnia and sleep deprivation are different. Where we're seeing all these health concerns is in the sleep deprivation zone primarily. But insomnia can be so distressing that it can worsen things like depression and anxiety. People become really obsessed with sleep and obsessed with some of the sleep hygiene techniques we'll talk about where they're trying to control it and like work harder at sleep. And similar to, I was talking with a patient recently about, you know, when you start to pay attention to your breath, sometimes it feels like I might forget to breathe or it feels really off or just out of rhythm. And I, oh my gosh, I'm breathing. Am I still breathing? You become, you know, so focused on it when you start to pay attention. But if you just let go and allow yourself to breathe, guess what? Your body's like, I got this. Yeah. The same with sleep. The same with sleep, you know, if your body is going to take the sleep it needs. And I tell every single patient that with sleep problems, your body's going to take the sleep it needs. We cannot prevent ourselves from sleeping. We will die. We cannot do it. We can starve ourselves, unfortunately, to terrible results, but we really can't keep ourselves from sleeping. And so just reassuring people that, look, your body knows what to do. Let's just find the ways that you might be keeping it up, either consciously or not so consciously. Yeah. 
I have heard you mention the analogy with sleep to appetite and that mm-hmm. it's you know somewhat natural, but yes, unlike appetite, you can starve yourself, but sleep, you're just going to fall asleep. Like I, there have been times that I have been sleep deprived and I find myself dozing off during a meeting or in the classroom or whatever it may be. I just cannot control it, but there is mm-hmm. nothing better than a good night's sleep. It really, it truly is like the bedrock, I feel like, of good health. You know, whenever I wake up after a refreshed night of sleep, I feel like I get two, three times the amount of things that I want to get done, done. I find myself in the gym very often. I find myself picking up healthy snacks versus unhealthy snacks. You know, it it really, I feel like, is a great foundation or, you know, first place to start in terms of pillar if you are thinking about your health and wanting to make some changes in that area. I mean, I would directly look to sleep because then I feel like everything that follows it is going to be much easier. Absolutely. I mean, even your body's releasing growth hormone hormone while you're sleeping. So that's helping you grow and kind of remodel. Another really cool piece of it is for people with like post-traumatic stress or traumatic experiences, and gosh, who hasn't had some of that during the pandemic for a number of different reasons, your brain kind of is able to rehearse processing some of these really painful and difficult experiences while you're asleep. And when part of your body, that kind of fight or flight, that sympathetic nervous system, releasing adrenaline when you're feeling anxious, that's actually much less, you know, much lower at night. And so your body gets the chance to kind of dress, rehearse, processing these difficult situations when it's not so on edge. So that's something that if someone has a traumatic experience, we really want to make sure that their sleep after the fact is as good as it can be. And so often it's difficult, but that that can really help actually prevent symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and then improve it over time for them. So it's a really key feature we look for in that specific area. That makes sense. Is the chronotype something that's true as well? I've heard like the the night owl or, you know, the early bird. Is that true in, in people? People are naturally geared towards a certain sleeping pattern? Absolutely. So chronotype is definitely a thing. We think about our circadian rhythm, which tells us now I'm awake and now it's time to sleep. The interesting thing is that does change over our lifetimes as well. So by all means, people in their adulthood, you know, 18 to however late, are going to have a more standard. My mother's a night owl. My dad loves to be up bright and early in the morning. So they're kind of always teasing each other about each, you know, my mom's (laughs) taking ice cream after my dad goes to bed or my dad waking up at four and doing like 15 projects my mom did not approve of, you know, one of those things. So, you know, but the interesting thing is as, you know, little babies, they're still trying to create some kind of rhythm. The brain's just not really ready to create a very systematic rhythm. That's true with puppies too. So, you know, and when they got a new puppy during the pandemic, right, they're still trying to consolidate their sleep. And then as you get older, like in the teen years, there's a biological shift to later bedtimes. And guess what that creates, right? You've got the parents that are like, go to bed, like turn off that and put that away and go to sleep. And then, you know, when whatever time rolls around in the morning, fortunately, some schools are moving later sleep times, which I'm fully supportive of, you know, wake up. Why are you so tired? Why are you so lazy? Like, get out of bed. It's time to go to school. Right. But it really is a biologically mediated shift. And yes, there are ways to help them kind of manage that or deal with that. But, you know, the world wants them up and moving so early, especially if they're in all the extracurriculars that we're expecting of our kids these days. So there's that shift. And then when we get into much older age, you know, we're not older, I shouldn't say, you know, if my mom and dad are listening, it's still the wise, the wise age, <laughs> you know, but in your 60s, 70s, 80s, there's a shift to a little bit earlier bedtime. And so someone who's already kind of a morning person, they may say, gosh, I want to go to bed at like 8 p.m. And then I'm up at three or four and I don't know what to do for those few hours or I love it for those few hours. But there are these shifts that sort of happen throughout our lives. It is important, I think, to understand your own chronotype. And to recognize that it can be shifted, but also there just might be really prime time for you to get things done or like to exercise or, you know, to learn or to be productive. And I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic is people could maybe apply their most productive activities at the time that's best for them. And maybe that's from 10 to 12, you know, 10 p.m. to 12 a.m. Maybe it's really early in the morning, but there isn't the sense that like work happens between nine and five or whatever it may be, because that's just not how everybody is. Some people love to exercise in the morning. I'm just happy to walk down to the coffee machine. That <laughs> is my exercise in the morning. But by like mid afternoon, late afternoon, I'm like, okay, I could see doing, you know, minimal exercise. So I think it's understanding your own chronotype, knowing there are ways to shift it. If it gets really shifted, You know, working with a therapist or a sleep specialist can really help you kind of get back to hours that just work with the rest of society because it can be so isolating to be someone who's 
sleeping on off hours because so many of your friends and family are not, and it can be really lonely. And so we worry about that. And we also worry about people that aren't sleeping and are up through the night, that there are higher risks of things like suicidal ideation and suicide attempt in those wee hours of the morning. So we just really want to emphasize sleep for so many different reasons. I'm definitely the early bird. I get up at six most mornings, maybe a little bit later on the weekends, but I I find myself, I can't really sleep past seven on the weekends either, even without an alarm. But I probably resonate with the 60, 70, 80 year olds as well that by, I don't know, nine o'clock, I I kind of start to turn on my my evening routine. And I would say by 10, I'm, I'm out. And it's like very routine for me. Like I could I very rarely find myself struggling to fall asleep if it's after 10 o'clock, which is great for me. But then I guess on the flip side, if I am trying to sleep in, it it is hard. As soon as the light's out, I mean, I can shift a little bit throughout the, the year, depending on sun, sunrise, sunset. But as soon as I feel, see some light through the window, I'm up and I'm, I got to move. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're fortunate. I definitely, there are days where I'm like, oh, I wish I were more of a morning person. I think for sort of the 20 year olds that might be listening, I think the other challenge too is if people are waking up earlier and wanting to go to bed a little earlier, so much social life happens, you know, at in the later evenings and into the wee hours. And so people are trying to adapt or maybe they're staying up really late on the weekends and then sleeping in later on the weekends, which creates something we call social jet lag, where you know how jet lag can feel if you've traveled internationally or changed yep. time zones, even from New York to California you kind of feel awful. If you're kind of sick, headache, just feel really awful because your sleep drive, which we can talk about, is not matching up with your circadian rhythm. There's this mismatch and your body's very sensitive to that. So trying to keep a similar wake time each day is something I work with a lot of people on if they're struggling with their sleep schedule. It's not that fun. Who doesn't like to sleep in on the weekends or when you have a chance, but that can just kind of disrupt and your brain starts saying, oh, wait, when am I supposed to be in bed or when am I supposed to wake up? Teenagers certainly get into that habit because, again, this biological shift, there's more social life. They want to stay up late on the weekends and sleep in. Maybe if they sleep in, you know, later, they don't have to do the morning chores, all sorts of reasons that they want to, you know, sleep. So that could be complicated. I never heard of social jet lag. That's an interesting phrase on it. I I struggle (laughs) with that a lot because I, I, as I was mentioning, I'm like a 10 o'clock go to bed kind of person too. And I mean, I feel like at the latest, I can stay up to like midnight on the weekends as well. But you're right. So much of social life starts around like nine o'clock on a Friday or a Saturday night. I struggle with that. And I'm not really sure how to work through that sometimes. I think most of my close friends know that it's like, all right, if it's around midnight, I'm probably dipping out and going to sleep because it, it truly is like you were mentioning too. I'll wake up and I have a headache and I feel sick and like, I don't want to do anything the next day. Even if I didn't drink, it feels like I have a hangover, which is a bummer. But that's why I, I try to find a bunch of early morning or afternoon type friends too. I have lots of friends that love to like do things outdoors and I love that, but like, I just can't hang with people at night. <laughs> And so there are some ways that we can kind of help our brain because it's so exquisitely sensitive to light. So for example, someone who just cannot fall asleep or wants to fall asleep really early in the evening or earlier than they would like. And that's really key, right? There's no like definite, this is when someone should go to sleep, but just based on their own life, maybe we have them take a nap later in the day, like a quick 20 minute nap at like 4 p.m., a disco nap, I think they used to call that, (laughs) you know, so that they can stay up a little later try and get bright light in the late afternoon or even in the evenings and limit it somewhat in the morning. So, you know, I want people to, to know they can talk to their providers about this. I wouldn't give them, you know, actual medical advice, but there are strategies, even as simple as that, to help you shift. Or if you know you're going to have a late night, taking a little nap or even doing a little midday caffeine, if you're into caffeine, you know, that can help. But ideally, waking up at the same time the next morning that you typically do, And again, maybe you'd have a little nap later in the day if that's possible. But I think it's still better that your main wake-up time stays the same with a little nap maybe later in the day. Hey, this is Justin Peters from the Struggles Real Team. I hope you're enjoying the show. We're going to get right back to it after a quick message. I have so much fun interviewing the guests that come on the Struggles Real. And I try to squeeze out as much knowledge as I can. But as much as I'd love to talk to them all day, We only have a limited amount of time. Luckily, so many of my guests have condensed all of their wisdom into a book. So if you've resonated with a guest on the show, I encourage you to go check out their book. These books are incredible and I think they add a ton of value. I have all the guest books in one easy to find place. Just head over to justinpeters.co forward slash books. 
by purchasing books through the links on our website, you're also supporting the show. So thank you for that, as that is how we continue to expand The Struggle is Real. Now back to the episode. So I think that brings us into sleep hygiene, which is really just, I feel like a fancy word for like putting yourself in a better position to fall asleep. And I know there's a lot of advice around potential sleep hygiene tips out there. What are one or two of your favorites that either you've taken into your personal life that have really impacted how you sleep and or that you work with your clients on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that one caveat I would give to some of the sleep hygiene suggestions is sometimes when people have you know anxiety or are just really you know willing to work really hard at this and they're going to fix their sleep, that they can become a little bit too focused on sleep hygiene in a way where they might restrict things they would actually like to do because, no, I have to do my routine or they do it almost obsessively. And that itself can create some anxiety. Like, what if I don't get the particular routine the same way as I typically would? So. You know, these are all general ideas, but also in moderation, right? We don't want there to be any extremes, but we talk about sleep hygiene as just sort of setting the stage for a good night's sleep. There are more direct behavioral things that we work on to treat insomnia, but some of the sleep hygiene things are just, you know, makes makes sense, right? Having a quiet in a dark room, if someone's trying to do shift work and sleep during the day, make sure they have really blackout curtains, a nice quiet room. I think recognizing that there are a lot of people that have pets in their room, if they are trouble having trouble with sleep or waking up more frequently because of noise or that, you know, dog is running, pushing them over, things like that, really considering whether that's the best, best thing for them, right? If they're not well rested, you know, are they the same or as good as they could be? And do they still want to keep the pet in the room? And some people will, and that's absolutely fine. My sister sleeps with like three dogs and a cat. Bed, <laughs> that's crazy to me. <laughs> I know. I agree. I sleep in quotations perhaps, but you know, I think that that's just considering even your, your bed partner. I do have some couples where they actually sleep they come together and just try to connect in the evenings and then go to separate rooms for sleep because maybe one snores or one's really restless. And again, there doesn't have to be a, a lack of intimacy with, with some of those changes. An important one to talk about, certainly in their you know, 20s and certainly what I experienced in my 20s, I'll admit, is, you know, alcohol use and sleep. And I think it's really an important topic because, you know, lots of people have been drinking more during the pandemic, some less. But maybe feeling more anxious, they're watching the news at night or going on, you know, Instagram or what have you and feeling anxious and then using alcohol as sort of a, a way to target that. The tricky part about alcohol, it is a sedative. So it can make us feel kind of tired. Maybe we'd fall asleep a little faster. Trouble is the way that the chemical affects our brain is that we can't get into as deep a sleep as we would otherwise. It actually keeps us in a more shallow sleep structure. So the sleep isn't as restorative, that really deep level sleep that we think is the best for you know, all the things that I was talking about earlier, we're not able to get into that stage as well. And it's, you know, dose dependent, right? The more you drink, the more issues you're going to have with that. The other thing is, as you start to metabolize these, you know, alcohol, some of its metabolites really are fairly toxic. I mean, that's why we have hangovers and they can really create anxiety. They can make you feel really jittery or anxious and even wake you from sleep. So that's another piece where people even the next day might feel really jittery or anxious. And some people have had their first panic attack when they're hungover and they're feeling jittery and dehydrated and that, you know, tips it off one and then it turns on to this cycle of panic attacks. So I do tell people, look, I mean, you can choose to use alcohol. That's fine. I like a glass of wine. I like a beer at a basketball game. But I know that that could potentially interfere with my sleep. I really want to hydrate. I want to make sure I'm eating some food with it. I don't want to go overboard because then I know even if I sleep I don't know, 12 hours that night, I'm still going to feel exhausted and awful the next day. So just seeing it as this is a risk for my sleep. This isn't, oh, this is going to help my sleep or it's neutral. Like it can affect my sleep negatively. And sometimes the choice is still to have some drinks and that's part of the choices that you make. And I certainly support, you know, using it the way that you want to in moderation, but know that it does affect your sleep. And then when you're not getting good sleep, then again, you're at higher risk of getting sick, right? You know, maybe you're hungover and then you end up getting that flu that everyone was having and you were previously yep. healthy. So I think it's just awareness of what the effects of alcohol are. They're not, it's not a good sleep aid per se, but many of us self-medicate with that. Again, there's not as much support for people getting treatment as I'd like there to be and it's costly. But I think alcohol is not a great choice as a sleep aid if someone's trying to kind of decide do you have a general rule around alcohol? Like, is it four hours before bedtime or something like that? 
I think they, they certainly will say like not doing it right before bedtime, but of course that's often when people do. So mm. I, you know, I certainly would encourage to be a little bit earlier. Maybe you'd have a drink with dinner and then have some time to recover after, but really it's balancing it, you know, introducing water between each drink, making sure there's some food in your system, you know, making sure you have some time for recovery and rehydration after drinking, I think is important, but yeah, certainly any time in the evening or late night can interfere with that sleep. Yeah. What about our other favorite drink of choice, caffeine, um, mm-hmm. coffee? What's your thoughts around caffeine and coffee intake? Yeah. So, I mean, sort of gets me to talk about our sleep drive. So essentially you've got the circadian rhythm, which says this is night, this is day. The sleep drive is just something that sort of builds up in our system from the moment we wake up until we go to sleep. And one of the chemicals that kind of builds up over time to make us feel sleepy is called adenosine. So as the day goes on, this level is going up and up and up. It's increased by exercise, increased by sex, you know, and then we use caffeine. Guess what caffeine does? It blocks the effect of the adenosine. So we don't feel as sleepy, but guess what? It doesn't block adenosine altogether, just the feeling of sleepiness. So when we, that caffeine kind of wears off, guess what? We can crash because that, that sleep drive is still building up over time if we haven't slept. And then caffeine is just masking that. So we don't have much data to say that caffeine truly improves our ability to like focus or concentrate, but it does certainly make us feel less sleepy and engaged. But again, if that's blocking your sleep drive, let's say you need a full glass of sleep drive to go to sleep at night. Well, caffeine can block that. You still have that full glass. A nap might lower that glass level a little bit. So caffeine, you're still going to need the sleep you need, but it might make you feel too keyed up or not sleepy enough when it's time to sleep and can truly interfere with your sleep overnight. So maybe, you know, depending on how sensitive people are to caffeine and we are when we're much younger and we are when we're again much older, you know, I'd say I wouldn't have anything after the early afternoon, for example, if you're trying to go to bed at kind of a typical time, because it can last in your system six, eight hours or even longer, depending on how you metabolize it, how much you drink. Yeah, my rough rule is no caffeine after two. I think I got that from somebody and it's worked out very well for me. That gives me about eight hours before my 10 o'clock sleep window. So, but I do love my cup of coffee in the morning as well. So I, I try to wait until about nine to have a cup of coffee. So I got to pour one right before we got on this call, actually, which is great because I love to have a cup of coffee while I'm having conversations with people as well. But I find myself now naturally kind of getting rid of it around one or two o'clock too, especially now that it's summer too, just a hot black coffee doesn't sound as enticing <laughs> anymore at this point in time. But but yeah, that's just rough rules for me. And then adenosine, is melatonin then the opposite of that? Or how do these two correlate? Because I know people are taking melatonin then to feel more sleepy. How are they correlated if they are at all? Yeah, so, so yeah, adenosine kind of reflects your sleep drive, makes you feel sleepy, builds up over time. Melatonin is really one of the hormones that's involved in the circadian rhythm. So what it does is we start to have a peak of that in the evenings, and that is a signal to our brain that we're going towards sleep. It's a signal to our brain. Basically, the light that we receive all day kind of suppresses melatonin release. But when the light starts to diminish, the melatonin level starts to go up, you know, Mm. kind of not immediately. But that really is what is giving us our signal that it's time to sleep. So we do have our own natural release of melatonin from the pituitary gland. The tricky part, though, is we can use it as a signal for sleep, but it's not like a sedative. It's not a sleep aid. It's not going to make you feel tired. It should be a signal that, look, it's time to sleep. And so people need to take it like a couple hours before their ideal sleep time. Where we have some data for it being beneficial, maybe in younger kids, but I'll defer on that because I think that's still a question and not an area that I treat. But also in the elderly, because we start to have some waning of that circadian rhythm signal, just with the brain changes that happen with aging. And so sometimes they can benefit or people that are doing shift work or have jet lag, again, where there's some kind of mismatch and and challenge with that circadian rhythm, it can kind of help reset it, reset the signal, so to speak, like resetting your clock after electricity goes out. So you're resetting the signal with some exogenous, like added from outside melatonin. But sometimes I think people take more than they really need to or expect it to take it right at bedtime and go right to sleep and then say it doesn't work. Well, that's not, you know, ideally how it works. So it sounds like certain situations, a few hours before bedtime in a small dosage, melatonin could potentially help with sleep. Right. So it's certainly something to kind of, you know, do some research on or talk to your doctor about to make some of those decisions. But that's sort of where we have some data to support its use. Exactly. Hmm. Any other help with jet lag? My girlfriend is a 
chronic traveler. She travels for work all the time. So she's in different time zones and not just like East Coast to West Coast, but very often over in Europe or somewhere as well. And she seems very sensitive to jet lag as well. Like I will sometimes find her up at like three or four o'clock in the morning because she is on central time, but she's over in Paris or something crazy like that. Any other general advice or tips with people that are frequently traveling that might experience jet lag? Yeah, I mean, I think it is really challenging and might be sort of an individual approach for when to use some of these tools. So when to use the tool of melatonin, because you want to get your brain thinking that nighttime's coming in a couple hours after. When to use the tool of light, honestly, whether it's light outside or even bringing a small light box or something like that so that you can kind of use light at the time where you really want to be awake and want to be alert and try and push a bedtime later, for example. So it can be, and, and like professional athletes and such work on this a lot, they have like mm -hmm. their, you know, experts that come and help them because they're struggling with some of this as they go back and forth across the country. And so part of it might be starting to prepare before travel. Now that's tough if you're traveling all the time, but starting to prepare to shift a little bit more to that time zone if you can. And then once you're there, using some of these tools to help you shift, you know, avoiding things like alcohol in that situation, just because that can make things harder, right? Because even when you're trying to sleep, you're not getting good quality sleep and that really can cause some trouble. And just being careful about when you're using caffeine, things like that. There's some of these tools that can be helpful for it, just can take its toll over time. It's nice to have some consistent sleep in patches within that, that schedule. Yeah. Another one of her big issues too, is that she's just in a new environment, like a new hotel room, and mm -hmm. it's not necessarily bringing comfort, somewhat anxiety. So that doesn't help with helping her fall asleep as well, which brings me to something interesting. And, and I'm guessing, or I think I could probably guess your opinion on it, but wearables watches or the aura rings or things like that seems really cool from the onset. And I've always wanted an aura ring to track my sleep. But I'm guessing hearing you talk throughout this conversation as well, you might advise against that. Is that true? Is tracking our sleep like this and, and becoming obsessive over some of our sleep quality maybe detrimental in a back doorway? That's a great question. I mean, I first want to comment on your, you know, your girlfriend in a new hotel room or a new room. I think this is one of these really fascinating wow facts that I, you know, have learned over time is that, for example, like dolphins, they only sleep with half of their brain. So half of their brain's awake, half of their brain's asleep. That's insane. Isn't that crazy? You know, because they need to be alert. And there's some suggestion or some data that humans do that in a much milder way when we're in new environments, that we actually are keeping more of our brain active especially that first night in that new environment. So it's not unusual, even if it's a lovely hotel room and you love the bed or what have you, that it takes your brain a day or two to adjust to that new environment. And so that can just affect, you know, how you're sleeping there. So just more just an awareness that, yeah, it might take a little bit of time to adjust to that. As far as the wearables, so, right. So how we're thinking about this, what we're using it for, using it in moderation, you know, what's really challenging is if someone comes in and they said, you know, I felt like I slept really well last night, but then I checked my wearable and I said, I didn't. <laughs> and you're like, mm, well, okay. You know, so I think you can get into some trouble. Are they truly sensitive enough to know whether you're sleeping, know how deeply you're sleeping? Right. I mean, we hook up people to EEGs to really do like some of these different sleep studies and sleep tests. And they're really and we're also kind of measuring their respirations or measuring their heart rate and their blood pressure and all these things. And yes, the wearables can do some of that. But to really be precise, I think to, to gauge your whole experience based on what does my wearable say can create some problems if someone has a lot of anxiety about sleep. Because again, maybe they did get adequate sleep, but maybe they were a little restless in sleep and something about their movement and the increase in heart rate that came with that led the, the wearable to predict otherwise or suggest otherwise. So I really say, you know, be careful with them and don't assume you know, that they have all of the answers for you in those situations. Yeah, you're, you're making me not want to get a wearable now. Like I said, I've had an aura ring on my wish list for quite some time. Oh, I'm no, like I'm going to get calls from the companies that are like, stop <laughs> talking about wearables. No, no, you're allowed. I think you're allowed to have your opinion. And I think it could be, it could work well for some people that do want to have some kind of biomarker on how they are doing. And especially like, I think it would be very cool to use some of that information because I can't get hooked up to an EEG all the time, you know, but after a night of drinking, what does my aura ring data show me? And maybe that could help affect some of the decisions that I make and lead to some better quality sleep. But yes, I could also see myself becoming obsessive over it. Just like my steps, I wear my Apple Watch too. And I'm like, oh man, I haven't hit my 10,000 steps today. 
And then I'm like walking around in circles in my apartment. Like, <laughs> like that, that might not be a good thing either. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of a mixed bag. So just kind of knowing yourself, knowing how you might want to use some of these tools. If you really feel like you have no idea or you don't think you sleep at all, maybe a wearable can give you a little bit more confidence in that way. Like, you know, there were a few hours that I would record here, but I do think that there's some risk. Yeah. As we're closing up this conversation, maybe we can end on anxiety and probably dovetail it into sleep as well. I like this tip that you give on changing what if statements to if then statements. I know that applies to sleep. Does that apply to anxiety in general as well? And, and maybe can we go into what that, that statement is and, and how you can reframe it and why that might be useful? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's useful universally. I think so many of us of all ages, but particularly people coming out of school and college, looking for jobs, going through all these transitions, going through all these moves, et cetera, then the pandemic on top of that. Anxiety is just a huge and growing issue. And really my sort of catchphrase I like to say is just that your mind should be on your side. Yes. And I think that's where anxiety can really start to interfere. Some anxiety is adaptive. We need some to stay out of dangerous situations. Again, through evolution, we really adapted to have some anxiety, but I think where it starts to take over or take control or make decisions for us and constrict our lives and cause us to avoid and, you know, kind of tuck in, that can really cause some problems over time. So you're right. The what if kind of questions I say, if you're really trying to just start by paying attention, you know, with curiosity and compassion to your own thoughts, watching for what if thoughts or listening for what if thoughts is really powerful. Because very rarely do we say, what if something amazing happened, right? Yeah. We say, what if something catastrophic or something bad or just something ugly happened? So catching those thoughts, knowing that that's my anxious mind, it's not me. I'm not defined by my anxious mind. That's my anxious mind giving me a rough draft of like, what if this or what if that? I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to keep you safe. Like that, like, you know, mother who I try not to be where it's like, be careful. And what are you doing? And <laughs> so I try to help people shift from those what if thoughts, which actually are probably being formed by some of those deeper areas, older areas of the brain, like the amygdala, that's kind of our smoke alarm, like something bad's happening. This is dangerous. I try to get them to say, how do we convert that question, which is sort of just nebulous and ends in this dark hole, convert that into a statement, right? So for example, with sleep, what if I don't get any sleep tonight and tomorrow on the podcast, I sound like a complete fool. Okay. How do I change it? So if I don't get as much sleep tonight as I'd like, yeah, tomorrow I might be a little more tired. I might be a little more snacky. I got to keep an eye on that. But I'm going to sleep really well the next night then, right? I'm going to catch up on it. Or I'm going to give myself a little bit more of a pass on my like intense productivity goals tomorrow, right? I'm going to recognize maybe I'm going to work at 70% and that's okay. But it's not this, what if I'm going to work at 10%? Because very rarely do people, even when they're sleep deprived, we have all these mechanisms to keep us awake and alert, even when we're sleep deprived, you know, that again, we've evolved, but we can't just be falling asleep if someone's chasing us or attacking our, you know, tribe, et cetera. So I think that's important to really think about in this, in this area. Yeah. It was one of my favorite takeaways from researching you. And I applied it last night, actually. I had some friends come over and we ended up playing a poker game and it went way longer then I wanted it to go. We ended around 1130 and I told you I'm a 10 o'clock um, going to bed kind of person. I knew I had this early morning podcast interview as well. And I was starting to have some of those worry thoughts that came up here like, oh my gosh, this isn't got to turn out well. And now I'm really anxious about it and all of these certain things. And then I was thinking about this piece of advice that you said. And then I went, I changed the worry to the planning and the preparing. So, okay, what can I do about this? And I push my alarm back from six to seven. Let's grab an extra hour of sleep. I can always shift some things around in my afternoon schedule if I need to take a nap. I can go to bed earlier on this Friday night if I really need to. And I can just show up and, and I know I can, I can give my best here at, at this point in time as well. So, so yeah, it was super powerful. I really, really liked that. The other thing I liked around anxiety for you too was exposure and kind of this like small repeat exposure. And I think when I was hearing you talk about it, you gave this example of, social anxiety and somebody being very anxious about asking somebody out. And I don't know if you remember your advice or not, but you stepped them back and, and you said, well, what could we do to start smaller here and to get some exposure to this? And your advice was ask someone what time it is. Like you don't need to ask someone out, maybe just ask them what time it is. And then you can get that small exposure that people aren't going to snap back at you. They're going to give you the time. They're going to look at you. They're going to be friendly, all of these certain things. 
Is that still something that you think is a good prescriptive and helping progress through some of these anxieties, not just social anxiety, but I think it's a really good, uh, really good tip within social anxiety. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that's one of the tenets of really high quality, you know, therapy for social anxiety, for other anxieties and part of the CBT, some specific techniques that we use. We know that avoidance, I think about avoidance is like eating junk food. So say you're really anxious about getting into an elevator, so you just like don't do it. And in that moment, your anxiety goes down, just like your appetite. Like if you eat some Cheetos, which I love, not the flaming hot so much. Regular. <laughs> I, I would agree with that. The regular is the, be- the better. The regular is the best, right? The good crunch, not the puff ones. <laughs> so, you know, it will go down a little bit just as you won't feel as hungry if you have some junk food. But guess what? An hour later, you're hungry again. And with avoidance, what that leads to is over time, it can build up your anxiety about a particular fear or a particular situation. Because what are you doing every time you avoid? You're telling your brain, the part of your brain that we can't always talk directly to, but we, they're paying it. It's paying attention, right? Like young kids. It's saying, oh, this is dangerous. Oh, that elevator is dangerous. Oh, talking to that girl or that boy is dangerous. And I've had, I left last time because it was so dangerous, right? So you're reinforcing this idea that it's not safe. I do think that I'm hearing from a lot of people of all ages that there is maybe a little bit more social or a lot more social anxiety for people because we've all been so isolated We've really pulled back from that. We're kind of coming out and trying to, you know, in some cases more than others, depending on how, where people live and how they've been responding to the pandemic. But it does feel kind of novel again. And it feels a little bit higher stress and a little bit more difficult. In part, I tell people like, look, be compassionate with yourself. Look what you've gone through. Look how you've adapted. You had to shift your whole life, right? So now we're telling, you're trying to tell your brain, that part of your brain you're trying to speak to, like, it's all okay now, you know, we can go on big groups. Let's go to a concert. And your brain's like, whoa, no, 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 no. Like I'm not, nope, this is not what we've been doing. This is new, this is uncomfortable. So in part being compassionate with yourself that there's, that may not mean that there's some big problem that's happening. It just may be you're human and you've been trying to make these adaptations at a pace that was so fast compared to what we typically do over time. And so giving yourself a little bit, you know, or a lot of compassion, a little bit of a free pass in some ways but doing really small opportunities to, to expose to these situations, not flooding. Like we don't want to do something that if from zero to a hundred, it's like a 90 on your scale of what stresses you out and makes you anxious. Right. So if it's like asking a girl out while you're like doing a dance and like, you know, like something that's just like, sounds terrible to you. Yeah. Let's pull it way, way, way back lower on the kind of hierarchy of different exposures we might help you do and allow you to sort of ease into that. Cause you're just giving your brain time to adapt and adjust to like, these things are are safe. Or I've had a good experience with this, with social anxiety, that went pretty well or better than I thought. And so the next time I'm not anticipating so much negativity, I'm anticipating a little bit more neutrally. Maybe I'll show up at the party and, you know, no one will kick me out the door. Okay, that's a good step. Maybe I'll show up at the party and everyone will just be like, amazing, celebrating me. Okay, that's, we're a little ways off. But like, (laughs) those kinds of thoughts are so powerful. And you really think it's just a thought. You get to choose what those thoughts are. If your rough draft thought is, no one's going to talk to me, it's going to be terrible. Okay, thanks brain for trying to help me here. But let me think of an alternative that doesn't, isn't such a, you know, boundary for me. It doesn't push me back into my own little safe space because anxiety really constricts. So has the pandemic is really constricted. And so if we try and open up again, we have to ease into it a little bit, be compassionate with ourselves and those around us. And we're going to get back to it, right? Like things have really shifted. There's no back to normal. How do we move ahead to something new and pleasurable? I can really resonate with that. I think it was a tough transition to get back into the social world through the pandemic. I did not realize how much of a struggle that transition was going to be, but I have been trying to be very patient with myself in all of that. But Dr. Jennifer Reed, it has been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. We covered so many great things and I still have a plethora of notes here on other things. So if people want to consume more from you because you cover these topics and more on on your podcast, where can people connect with you? Where's a good place for for people to go and, and find all things Dr. Jennifer Reed? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. I think my website, thereflectivedoc.com, so doc.com has the podcast. And I do write a blog, which is a little bit more personal about my own experiences as like a working mom and, and physician during the pandemic and otherwise. Um, so certainly through there, they're welcome to reach out to me if they have ideas of someone they want to have come on the podcast or topics they want me to write about. I also write for Psychology Today regularly. They can read some of those things. So 
just trying to educate as much as I can to help people like me growing up that didn't have access to some of these options. No doubt. So Jennifer, my final question for you. If you had the opportunity to teach a 16-week class to a group of graduating college seniors on a topic that isn't normally covered in the classroom, what would you teach and how would you teach it? Mm, I think I would really want to teach them the concept of a growth mindset. Mm. And that, that phrase has kind of been bandied about a lot and sort of buzzwordy. But originally the book by Carol Dweck, who was a psychologist at Stanford, I believe, is really all about how can I look at my life as just a series of trials and either it moves forward and it works or I learn from it, right? To not be afraid of failure, to not be afraid to try something new because I want to be perceived as always having it all together. You know, I think in your 20s, that is the time. It's so challenging. You want to be moving forward. You want to be successful, but you're also experimenting a lot and you're trying to figure out who you are and you're on your own finally. And we make good choices and we make poor choices. Like, did I need the tongue ring in, in college? I don't know. Probably not. Probably <laughs> not. I told my boys that the other day and they were like, what? You know, I, I don't know. Like, maybe I did. Maybe I needed to be a bartender in Scotland as my work abroad as opposed to like doing research. I don't know. I learned from it. Right. So really giving yourself a little freedom to experiment, to try new things, to make mistakes. I think if you could learn how to do that, it's something I'm still working on every day. But I think really having a growth mindset, checking out that book could be helpful. It's just Carol Dweck, D-W-E-C-K. It's amazing. I just reread it recently. But that's what I would want to teach on and maybe bring her in as my, uh, my co-collaborator. No doubt. Yeah, we have referenced that book at least three or four times on this podcast. <laughs> so we can drop in the show notes too for anyone that's interested in checking that out. But folks, Dr. Jennifer Reed, Jennifer, it has been incredible. I really enjoyed this conversation. Really looking forward to um, following you and all of the material that you put out into the world. So thank you so much. And I appreciate you um, coming on the podcast and, and sharing some of your wisdom. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me and for reaching out to your, you know, this age group. I think they're just going through a lot. So to have some of these voices out there is so important. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation today, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified about new episodes. If you want to connect with me, send me a message on Instagram. I'm at Justin Lee Peters. You can find show notes with links to everything we discussed today at justinpeters.co. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimeke. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in.